I don't think you can imagine what a joy it is for me to be here. Many of you are like um, children who don't know how rich your heritage is in this place, even if you're older. God has done astonishing things here. And it was a privilege for Susan and me to be part of it. And we've never forgotten it. And um, I left here in 84, shortly before Easter. And I've been here a number of times, but it's the first time I've ever gotten to do this. And so I'm very grateful for this privilege. So great to see Jim again. Goodness sakes, I remember him when he was that little high school kid and other friends here. I remember moving into this building. You know what I keep remembering? It's kind of a weird little memory, but you know, back, you don't see this anymore, but back here behind all this are pipes for the organ. And I remember so clearly that when they were putting these pipes in, one of our guys was way up there on a ladder and fell into that baptistry and was unhurt. I keep thinking about that this morning. The grace of God in that one story, I don't even remember who it was, but I sang in the choir up here. So anyway, I'm grateful. I'm sorry my brother and Jane aren't here today. They went back home to see mom, and uh, mom's 91, so I'm glad they could be with her, and all the cousins were together there. Um, so uh, there's no sense in beating on him this morning if he's not here to enjoy it. <laughs> well, I better not reminisce. We have a bigger and better work to do. Pray with me, please. I'm grateful, Father, for this privilege to be here in this place with so many memories to be one of the sons of this church, to uh, come and uh, open the scriptures. Thank you that it has been the life of this body for all these years to open the scriptures. I'm grateful for that. And now I pray, Lord, that you would help me and these brothers and sisters as we come to the word of God together, this ancient song, that it would become our own by the Spirit of God, in Jesus' name, amen. August Wilson, who is a great American playwright, wrote the play, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. It was uh, trying to capture one decade of the African-American experience and was set in 1911. And it's sort of looking at the lives and the experience of the sons and daughters of slaves. One of the characters in this play is Loomis. He's kind of a sad sack. He doesn't know who he is, sort of a lost soul. But there is this sage, Bynum, who is a remarkable character. And there's a scene in this play, I remember, 
seeing this during the Tonys on television years ago, and it riveted me. And I found it and read the play, and Bynum is saying, or I mean Loomis is saying to Bynum, how you know so much about me? How you know what I'd done? How much cotton I picked? And Bynum replies, I can tell from looking at you. My daddy taught me how to do that. Say, when you look at a fella, if you taught yourself to look for it, you can see his song written on him. Tell you what kind of man he is in the world. Now I can look at you, Mr. Loomis, and see you, a man who done forgot his song, forgot how to sing it. A fellow forget that, and he forget who he is. Forget how he's supposed to mark down life. When the Jews were carried into captivity in 586 BC in Babylon, in a way they forgot their song. Psalm 137 it's kind of like one of those African-American spirituals. It's got that tone, if you could hear it sung. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There in the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. You ever had a season like that? When the songs went out, nothing left but sighs and sobbing, no songs left. When you just couldn't sing the songs of Zion, ever had a time like that? Maybe it was a great grief Or maybe it was a mess of your own making. Well, for the Jews, beginning 70 years after they had been driven out of their homeland, God allowed the first wave of the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem. They had to walk, if I calculate this right, over 1,500 miles to get home, and that is not easy country. That's like walking from Deerfield to Salt Lake City. Better get started. But imagine after all that, 70 years, 70 years, most of these folks had never seen their homeland. And if they did, they were old. If they remembered it, they were old. 
And they walked all that way across all that hard country. Imagine what it was like to finally walk up that last hill into Jerusalem. They had a song for it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. <laughs> Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. They were delirious. I imagine they sang and danced and laughed late into the night. They offered prayers of thanksgiving. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. God had brought them home. So that's the setting for Psalm 126, this Psalm of Ascent. After that, each time the Jews would make their way back to Jerusalem from wherever they were for one of the great feasts, this was one of the songs they'd sing as they started up those last hills. I don't know how they did it. They just start breaking into song, wouldn't you think? Didn't have worship leaders or somebody with a guitar or a harp. They just started singing these songs. They knew them by heart. And it is a song for us also. Not so familiar perhaps, but should be. It's a song to sing or a prayer to pray as we consider how God has restored us. You know, the application of psalms, the way we apply them to our lives, is to sing them or to pray them. That's what they're there for. How do you apply this song? Sing it or pray it or find songs that sing like it. Say the same sorts of things. Add it to your repertoire as a Christian and as a church. You actually have. We sang this song in several ways already this morning. It was wonderful. What a great group of musicians. I just love that. The trumpets and the clarinet, that, that's a classy touch. They don't all have that. Just guitars and drums, that was nice. And I must say, as an old man now, seeing the young people here, and thinking of your forefathers in this place, who you don't know, just blesses me. So what's the first point? This psalm, you know, is in two parts. It's two verses. The first would be this, sing for joy at being restored by God. 
Sing for joy at being restored by God. You heard a bit of Jim's testimony. You saw how important it was. When I was preparing, I was thinking about Greg and Laura. She called me one day and wanted to know if they could get married. I didn't know them. They'd, I don't know if they'd been to a wedding I did or what. And um, I didn't want to do this wedding. I don't like just doing weddings out of the blue, you know? And uh, I kind of pushed her back. She said, well, my dad is leaving in February. This was about the end of December. She said, my dad is leaving in February. We want to get our wedding in. They'd been living together and stuff. And I just didn't want to do it. I said, you know, there's no great virtue in getting married in a church. It's no different. I remember saying this. It's no, you know, you don't get any more points for getting married in a church. Just, I mean, you could just as well get married under the blue light at Kmart. <laughs> you got to be old. You gotta be old to know what that's about, but that's what I said to her. And I told her why, you know, about faith in Jesus, and that's what we gather for. And I was, honestly, I was trying to push her off. I didn't want to do this. And she said, well, if you won't marry us, would you talk to us about that some more? So they came to see me, Greg and Laura. And the first time they came, Greg was one month sober. Laura is brassy, hungry. And that day they accepted Jesus. You know what she told me? She said, I wanted to ask you if I could get up on your desk and dance. She said that when she rode home behind Greg on his motorcycle, she yelled, oh, I feel so good. And Greg had to tell her to quit squeezing him so hard. She was cutting off his circulation. She said she remembered thinking, I feel like I just took the best shower of my life. They might well have sung. We were like those who dreamed. Now, Israel's salvation story is the Exodus story, when God delivered them out of bondage and death. That's their testimony. That's when they came to know God, you might say, as a nation. It's akin to our various stories of coming to know Christ. <clears throat> this isn't a salvation song exactly. It's a restoration song. A second chance song. The Jews' captivity had not been an accident of politics or power. They had been carried into Babylon because they just simply would not stop sinning against God. And so his discipline was that they were carried off by this mighty country. There in Babylon, some of them at least repented of their sins. Their hearts were broken. They yearned, as you heard that one psalm, to see Jerusalem again. They prayed for God's mercy, some of them, and the Lord who is full of mercy and grace raised up a new king from a new power, Cyrus, king of Persia. And one of the things he did, unlike kings any other time or place, was to say, you can go home if you want to. 
He even supplied what they needed. And so they did. They began to return, not just as refugees, but as forgiven sinners, restored by God himself. It was like being born again, again. We have songs for both those things. We need them. Our experience of grace does not stop when we are born again the first time. We use the same songs at church here to celebrate both salvation and restoration. Songs we sang this morning. Maybe you thought as you sang some of them about the day you came to Jesus for the first time, but I bet a lot of us as we sang songs of salvation thought about all the other times that God has restored us, picked us up, forgiven us yet again, restored us. That's what this song is thinking about. We have songs of rescue and we have songs of what? Prodigals coming home. Remember Jesus' story, don't you, of the son who came home? And what did the father do? He threw a party. Let's celebrate and be glad. They must have sung. Maybe they sang this. They sang because this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he is found. Well, that's our story. That's why I love that story better than any other story I know. Our salvation songs are refreshed as restoration songs each time we get our bearings again, leave our sin again, and go home again. We have songs for that. Like this. My sin, you can sing. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Is the Lord, is the Lord, oh my soul. Let's sing the rest. I don't have a slide. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Now, was that a salvation song or a restoration song for you? Kind of both. Want to hear mine? Oh, be glad, oh, be glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be glad, 
be glad, be glad. That's mine. What did you miss most when we couldn't meet together all those long quarantine months? I miss singing. More than anything else, I miss singing. Last Sunday at our church in Rockford, where we live now, it was great. We'd been together, but it was the first Sunday we kind of celebrated with a picnic after church. Now, we go to a church that just merged. It's a merger of really three churches. There's a bunch of old Swedish Baptists, 150-year-old church. Great history. Then there was this church we found called Mosaic, which was sort of an urban hodgepodge of all kind of people. Poor people and rich people and white people and black people and professionals and people coming out of the rescue mission. And then there's another congregation of Burmese folks. And we've all come together and we sang, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. That's what we sang. And we took communion together. And we had a picnic together. But it was the singing that was the best. Years ago, I came across this statement by Bruce Thieleman, a great preacher. He said, there is one thing that's part of our worship that is not part of the worship of any other major faith on earth, and that is singing. Christianity is the one faith that puts a song in your heart. Confucianism has no chorales. Shintoism has no songs. Islam has no glorias. And atheism has no anthems. <laughs> so, what do you do? What's this song for? Sing. Sing for joy at being restored by God. Then this psalm takes a kind of turn. It becomes sort of a wistful plea. If, if it were a song today, I think the key would change to a minor key. It was wonderful that God's people were home in Jerusalem, but remember now Jerusalem is in ruins. That's what they come home to. The walls, which was their protection, had been pulled stone from stone. Their beloved temple had been sacked and burned. The fields around Jerusalem had been left for decades, abandoned, weeds and wild animals. Wells were in disrepair. They'd returned to the promised land, but it was hardly flowing with milk and honey. Their, their life now was more like the wilderness of Negev. When I was in Jerusalem, we've just been there once. I'm going again. We have two seats left, just saying. Um, but when we were there, that one of the most amazing things to me was we were driving on this ridge uh, kind of above Jerusalem. And you could look this way, and there's Jerusalem. And it's a big city, you know. And you look the other way, and there's nothing out there but a wilderness. 
right like that. So it was very present to them. So when they thought of their situation and their lives as being like the Negev, and when we do, they went back to their salvation story, their restoration song. When God first brought them into the promised land, they remembered that. When they'd come to that land way back under Joshua and the desert had bloomed like a garden and they had become a great nation. And so that's what fuels their singing again, using the same kind of language as the first verse. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The message puts verse four this way, and now God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives. So here's the second verse of this song. Sing, do it again. That's what we sing. Sing, do it again. Both parts of this psalm start with the same idea of God's restoration, of God's people being restored to the God-blessed life. The second stanza, though, sees that restoration in terms of seeds and watering and harvest, right? That's the picture we have. If God is going to do it again, if he's going to restore his people, restore you to the God-blessed life, it's going to happen this way. There's three steps here. It's very obvious. Basic farming. I grew up in farming country. I don't know much about it, but I know this. First, if we're going to experience the God-blessed life, we must be sowers. We have to be sowers. Listen, sowing seed is not the same as burying junk. Right? Seeds have life in them. And seeds are sown in soil where they can grow. A lot of times, all we seem to have to sow is junk. Not always, but here's the wonderful thing about God's restoration. He can grow beautiful things from forgiven sinners. From failures, we surrender to him. That isn't junk. Those are seeds. From great griefs. Even from terrible things that were done to you. Those things can be planted. If we try to bury those things in a junkyard somewhere, they are wasted, dead, lifeless. But if we plant them in God's kingdom, his resurrection life can produce fruit. Now, the unexpected part of this little farming picture that's given to us in this song is that the seeds we sow are irrigated 
not with rain, but with tears. That's the wrinkle here. But as soon as you hear this song, you know what it means. You relate to it. You understand what this means. The whole idea of praying <clears throat> that God would restore our fortunes, of picturing life like the Negev, suggests heartache, doesn't it? And suffering, that's the context of singing a song like this. But this says that those tears in those times are not wasted. Heartbreak brings us low, doesn't it? Weeping humbles us. It takes the stuffing out of us. It breaks even the proud. And it irrigates the seeds we have sown. Humility, represented by our tears, irrigates the seeds we have sown. Jesus said, Blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. In Isaiah 57, 15, our high and exalted God said, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Thanks to the grace and life of our Lord Jesus Christ, the seeds we plant and water with our tears bear fruit. They bear fruit. They come to a harvest. The harvest comes and with it great joy. I had thought of the same psalm that you read this morning. Psalm 30 says, weeping may stay for the night. It does too, doesn't it? But rejoicing comes in the morning. That's therapy for Christians. That's what changes things. When we plant for God's kingdom, whatever sorry seeds we have to plant, the harvest will come and it will come with great joy. If we could just take an hour just to st share stories. If I could say, you've got two minutes, stand up, tell me a story of what the Lord has done for us, they would all be stories that fit this song. All our stories. They might be of prodigal children who came home, of terrible failures redeemed by God, of desperate need at some point and God's provision. I remember when I was young, like many of you, I remember a man whose name I don't know got up at this, this stage right here and shared his testimony of how God took care of him when he was out of work. And not long after, I was out of work, and I was frightened. I felt like a failure. I didn't know where I was going to go. And that man's story still plays in my head. It was a song for me. 
We tell these stories and they all are wonderful. We have stories of tiny ministries that were started some way or another in somebody's life or community or country and they have grown and are bearing fruit. And we have stories of brothers and sisters who served Jesus so faithfully and then we sat here in this place for their funeral and sang the songs of hope that only Christians have. Bynum said a person needs a song to mark down life. He thought that that song just was within everybody. Uh, I don't agree with that, really. If it is, it's the blues. But here's a song God has given us. He gives us songs. He gave me a new song to sing. Here's a song. It's a prayer for our upward pilgrimage, isn't it? Yesterday, Steve at the coffee shop, who loves to talk and philosophize, told me that he thinks our journeys in life are more important than our destinations. Not if you're a farmer. Not if you're singing your way up the last mile to Mount Zion. Not if you're sowing seed and irrigating it with your tears. Ah, there's probably a risk in this. It gets kind of sentimental, but allow me to testify as I conclude. To testify. As you know, our church, North Sub was our church for 10 years. After five years here as a layman, getting more and more involved, I was given the astonishing opportunity to become the assistant pastor. My first official Sunday was December 10th, 1978. First time I spoke as a pastor was in this church on this platform at a Sunday night service when I was privileged to give the announcements. And afterwards, Pastor Leaston told me not to talk so long when I gave the announcements. <laughs> Three years later, I was ordained on this very stage, right here, December 27th, 1981. Ordination and my wedding are the two most important commitments of my life, both of them intended to be the launch of sewing. That day, that moment here, when those people gathered around me, that's my father in the front row, my mother, my brother. I was, it was like I was given a bag of seeds to sow that day. Well, being a pastor has been the greatest honor and privilege of my life. Well, it's a tough job. It isn't always like this morning. It's heartbreaking sometimes. I had so many joys and privileges, like hardly anybody else gets. But 
it was also really scary sometimes and terribly sad. There were doors I dreamed of entering that closed. Occasionally ministry for me was deeply frustrating and I'm sad that a good bit of it was pockmarked with my own failures. But thanks be to God, I finished. 41 years after I started, concluding with 22 years to the day across town, the Village Church of Lincolnshire. Interestingly, our farewell was held here because they weren't sure there'd be enough room over there. There would have been, I didn't have that many friends, but, <laughs> but it was held here, which was great. It was so great to come back here. And at the end of that fairly well program, they had this deal where everybody came up and gathered around Susan and me and prayed for us. Right here, right where I had sat to be ordained, this very place. And this place where I now stand to speak to you, I returned with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with me. And we haven't even started to talk about heaven. Amen. Lord Jesus, encourage your people. Thank you for the songs you give us to sing. Not just to buoy our spirits, not just ditties, but anthems, hymns, glorias, hallelujahs, hosannas. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you for these. Now help us to walk up this hill more confidently and faithfully. For Christ's sake, amen.